Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. The week I recorded this uh, celebrated 29 continuous years of abstinence from the substance that was killing me, the substance that killed my father and hastened the death of my sister. Father died in his 40s, biological father, and my sister died in her 50s. And, um, and that substance was alcohol. And the date, the single day I recorded this, our guest this week uh, celebrated 29 years as well. So she's she's got me by about three or four days. <laughs> she has three or four days more wisdom. Molly Barker has just accomplished just so much. She founded a group called Girls on the Run, which positively impacted the lives of literally millions of uh, American girls and women and um, not of us, many of us can really say that. And so she's kind of intimidating <laughs> to me anyway. And I found her just hugely approachable. It was a lot of fun. We sat out in uh, Latta Park and you'll hear the cicadas and the chopper and the church bells and the carillion and the whole nine yards. Um, and just a conversation sitting at a picnic table out in Latta Park, uh, chopping it up. Does anybody even say that? Boy, that sounded <laughs> bad. Uh, we had a great conversation. We immediately connected. Molly Barker. Something that really interests me is the determinants of human nature. What makes people do the things they do? This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, I'm Stuart Watson. Welcome to In Her Words, um, a podcast from manlistening.com. Molly Barker uh, founded Girls on the Run, and you know, there's something called Founder's Syndrome, where you, you, know, like, you know the first line of your obituary is already written, and like, who, who am I other than somebody's mom, somebody's girlfriend, somebody's wife, somebody's daughter? Like, who am I? Who am I? Am I just in this little box, the founder of Girls on the Run? You know, and so she had this kind of um, identity question and she ran away from, uh, didn't, ran toward Marfa, Texas, from her native home of Charlotte, North Carolina. And after uh, three or four years, she came back. And so we talk about why she went away and why she came back. Um, she refers at one point in this conversation to the pillars of white supremacy, which she's doing her best to take a jackhammer to. I applaud her in that, so we're going to put those in the show notes so you'll know what it is she's talking about. Molly Barker. Where were you born? Charlotte, right here at Memorial Hospital. It's now... What is that? Atrium? Yeah. So it's still there? It's still there. <laughs> so you're a native. I'm a native Charlottean. Yes. How many just how many generations? This is the, I'm the my parents moved here when they were in their early 20s from from, a, from up north. Where up? Uh, one's from Philadelphia and the other was from a little town outside of Buffalo, New and York. And why did they come here? I think you know, I was the fourth of four, so I was pretty far behind the others. And by the time I came along, I missed a lot of family history. It was like, oh, we've done there, been there, done that. But my dad moved here for a job with Pure Oil, comp Pure Oil, I think. Sure. Yeah. Eventually, he landed in the insurance company and in insurance where he, he finished out his career. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. What part of town did y'all live in? We grew up. We grew up. I grew up in Myers Park. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you go to Mars Park High School? No, I went to Charlotte Country Day School in 1971, just about the time our um, public school system was 
integrating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did your siblings go there? Yeah, they all went to Myers Park. Oh, they went to Myers Park, but mm -hmm. your parents sent you. Yeah, so, you know, my dad was a conservative Republican um, and had some concerns about what would happen, and I'm doing air quotes, uh, to the educational system when we integrated. So they sent exactly me Exactly what my father yeah, did. Yeah, they sent me to Charlotte Country Day School, which I don't regret at all. Um, it's a I great was a, school. Yeah, I was just oblivious to all the cultural things swirling at that time. I think I was too, to be honest, self-centered self at the time, um, really concerned with checking off all the boxes, you know, getting to college, getting the job, getting the man, getting the marriage, all those things. I didn't, I just didn't have any, any, I don't even, I don't even have the words to describe it now. It was like, that's where my head was, you know. Um, Which comes first, the job or the man? Probably the man for really? a generation for me. Yeah, back then, you know, now it's, there isn't one and I'm so happy. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've always, you know, one of the things that's happened to me recently, I moved to Marfa, Texas. I yes. I've heard. Yeah. yeah, and part of it was to be nobody's somebody. You know, I think for my whole life I was sort of conditioned that to be a, a full woman, I had to be somebody's somebody. And uh, it's been quite a journey to figure out that I'm okay without a man in my life. Yeah, better. And I think it does have something to do with power. I think, you know, and again, I feel like I'm being so uh, inarticulate, but there was some kind of power I was, condi I was conditioned to believe that to have any power in the culture I grew up in, I needed to be married. That was one of those boxes. And if you were a single woman, there was something wrong with you. You were broken. And so I, I checked that box off several times. I've been married twice. Always had a boyfriend until my early 50s, actually. Where'd you go to college? UNC Chapel Hill. Is that where you met um, the first Mr. Wright or? Uh... No, the first, well, I was engaged to the first Mr. Wright, just like your friend you just referenced. <laughs> uh, we didn't get married. And second, Mr. Wright, I met at Charlotte Country Day School when I went to teach there. Wow. So Charlotte Country Day, it seems like I kept circling back around to that place. So I went there, then I taught there, and then I started Girls on the Run there. But yeah, I met him, and he's a great man, and I just wasn't ready for a great man. You know, I think my, I had some more work to do on myself. Yeah. Girls on the Run was started way back then? No, but it was several years later, 1996. Okay. But I taught there in 1986. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, favorite course in high school? Favorite thing that you just oh. like, oh my God, I just study this all the time. Chemistry. Really? Yeah. So I was a chemistry undergraduate major. And chemistry for me was like puzzles and baking and recipes. And you could combine things and they combust. and. Other things would just you sit there. You could blow stuff you up. You could definitely <laughs> blow stuff up. And I went and worked at um, Westminster Schools in Atlanta and did blow some things up. And <laughs> fortunately, didn't get in too bad of trouble. Intentionally or unintentionally? Well, we, we, I taught high school chemistry. And we'd, every Friday, have these sort of fun activities where we'd see how things would react. And I about caught one student on fire. But yeah, we, we survived. Well, they, you were a memorable teacher. Yes, for sure. Um, teacher that made a difference in your life? I'd have to say a woman named Sally Richards. She was my chemistry teacher and um, she was somehow able to combine both um, being human, like being a person and a teacher. You know, she wasn't just a teacher, if that makes sense. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. She was just, she walked me through some very difficult times during high school. That's great. To have someone who you can confide in mm -hmm. and they're not going to like judge you or rat you out or, you know, they're going to like genuinely say, you know, these may not be the best life choices. I know. Well, and then there's one really funny story just about her that is so, you know, it was just a little dot on the timeline of my life, but I will never forget it. I was a chemistry nerd and I was doing something in the back working, putting, helping put the chemicals away. And I'll never forget, she had 
a thing of Wrigley's cinnamon gum. And she just said, hey, want a piece of gum? And I was like, yeah, I'd like that piece of gum. And it just was so far, it was like something a friend would offer to a friend, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it just brought her to a place of like, she's not my teacher, she's my friend. And it's funny, these little tiny things that we remember that sort of humanize someone in the simplest of ways. Were you able, coming full circle, to be that person for some of these, for some of these kids, either at Westminster or Country Day? I hope so. I, you know, I hear from students who say that they were grateful for how I held space for them during their difficult times. The interesting part of that is, and you and I have talked about this, I was struggling with my own alcohol use during those periods. So there'd be periods of white knuckling where I think I was a much better teacher even though it wasn't recovery. Um, and then there were periods where I was kind of drowning in my own pity, you know. So I don't think I was so great then. But I hope that I was. So, yeah. um, like hungover? Hungover, dealing with um, relationship issues, um, shame. So distracted? Yeah, distracted. Yeah. What were you ashamed of? I think it's just the old shame of, you know, drinking too much, ending up in places where I don't remember how I got there, you know, waking up the next morning, showing up, you know, in a classroom and just kind of wearing that shame like a, like a mantle, you know. It just walked around with me all the time. There were so many times I swore that I would not drink. You know, and there was, there was this sort of all or nothing, you know, mentality. I still have it in some ways. But, yeah, if I failed, if I just failed again, that, oh, I just let myself down. It was, again, I can't even, it's just yucky feeling. Now, you use that phrase, holding space. Mm -hmm. And, like, what does that mean to you? Oh, my gosh, I think of literally the dozens of people that held space for me during those hard times. You know, what does they, it look like? It means you're, so the, the root, the Latin root for compassion means to suffer with. Oh, wow. So it's people who just sat with me. They didn't try to fix me or save me or rescue me. They didn't even judge me. They just allowed me to suffer without trying to rescue me from that. So there was something, my sister was a good at that. Another word I love is abide. You know, she just, stayed with me. I never felt deserted or neglected or left alone even when I was difficult to be with. Abide is a kind of a churchy word for me. Yeah. But it's also if when genuinely practiced you can strip away the artifice of religion and simply be there. <sighs> totally. For another person. Yes. And that is something that I believe sobriety has given me and I think I'm finally in a space where I'm able to do that for other people. And it's just such a gift. And I was able to do that for my children. I hear that from them a lot. Yeah. You know, they never knew me as, an out, as a drinker. You know, I was sober when I had them. I mean, that's a real gift. Yeah, and I got that, I'm sure, from my own mom, who got sober when I was in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And um, while it took a little bit of time, she was, oh my gosh, the greatest teacher of all in patience, you know, abiding, um, holding space for me during my struggles with alcoholism. Did your drinking and her drinking look in any way similar so that you put two and two together and like, oh, I got, I'm my mom? Totally. So, you know, I think now that I'm 61, I'm able to look back and You've got good skin, yeah. by the way. <laughs> now that I'm 61, I can, I find myself, I don't know if it's projecting, but I, I can tell stories, you know. I can sort of look at the moral, like what, what was going on there, you know. And my mom was a free-spirited, pretty radical woman in the 70s. She started running when she was 48 years old, and no one was running, like running jogging. And that's right after she got sober. And I believe she felt so confined to the check boxes that she was raised to have to live into that she started drinking as a way to cope. And I did the same thing. You know, I think there is something about being a Southern white woman and the expectation of that was just so 
oh, deep in our family history and also just living here. That, you know, one way to cope and to fit in and to conform was to just sort of numb out. Well, Philadelphia society is no cakewalk, no, but Southern true. society has its own constricting, it's almost like I see the image of a corset, the mm -hmm. old whalebone mm. corsets, you know, yeah. is a constricting environment. Totally. This and is not wearing the world like a loose garment. No, and yeah, I, I have always enjoyed poking the bear, you know, and I didn't <laughs> really understand that phrase until recently when someone said, Molly, you like to poke the bear, and I was like, think I do. <laughs> so my mother did too. You know, she would in her own ways, you know, back in 19, it's probably 76, 77, she was only five or six years sober. She went public with her sobriety wow. on a um, nationally broadcast public television show. Wow. And this is just not, you know, for a woman in Myers Park who always had on her red lipstick and her hair done just right. It was not acceptable for someone to admit that they struggled with alcoholism. Did she suffer some kind of blowback? I think so. I think some of the folks who had been kind of in her in her in her circle, probably not inner circle, just decided that, you know, Mary Wilmer was a little too vocal for them. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You think it cost her some friendships? Probably not genuine friendships. No, no, her inner circle. She was a member of, she did the 12-step thing and had close friends there that yeah. you know, obviously stuck through. And uh, where'd y'all go to church? Well, so I went to St. Peter's Episcopal Church mm -hmm. uh, with all both of my parents until um, my father thought that the minister was getting too political. This was during the um, Vietnam War. And then we went to St. Martin's Church, Episcopal Church, and my mother converted to Catholicism. And where did she go? What she went parish? to St. Patrick's uh -huh. Catholic Church. And so when one was going to one place and one was going to the other, did they stay married? No. Uh, yeah. Who did you go with? Like what? I stopped going to church Altogether. pretty much. I did like to go to my mom's five o'clock Saturday church because they played guitars and it was a very low key kind of you know, kumbaya sort of service. Yeah. But yeah, I stopped going to church. I ask that because whether it's 12-step group mm -hmm. or church or whatever, I don't ask that because of social status. Mm -hmm. I ask it because of community. Mm -hmm. Like what community? And so uh, at the time and then also fast forward to now, where do you feel connected? Like what group? It could be six women who go running or whatever. Where do you feel most connected? So that's a great question. Having been a bit of a wanderer the last 10 years or so, I'm looking for that now. Uh, I have an inner circle of friends that are so close, there is nothing that we do not talk about. Absolutely nothing. And I would actually put my kids into that category, although there's a few things that I won't talk to them about. Uh, so I'm looking. Yeah, and so I hope to get plugged back into some 12-step meetings here. Um, yeah, and after I left, after I stopped going to church, I did go to church for a little while with my best friend because I had a crush on the um, choir director. You know, these things were important. Whatever gets you in the door exactly. there, Molly. <laughs> the Lord moves in mysterious ways. And then I really haven't been to, you know, religion um, is just not, I'm too curious, I ask too many questions. Religion just hasn't, hasn't been the place for me. Yeah, so this circle that you've created, mm -hmm. like you've, created it. Yeah. You've invited them and you guys, and is it their relationship to you or it, are they all in relationship with each other the same way? They are not in relationship with each other. So uh. there are people all over the country. And oh. to be honest with you, gosh, thinking about it, many of them I have met through social media. Right. Yeah. And there was just a click. So one of the things that I get the greatest pleasure from is deep conversation. You know, conversation that goes beneath 
the weather, what have you done, you know, what did you do today, what was your job, things like, I like to go deep, and that is something that I've discovered in all of these people, is we just have these just amazing conversations. I mean, something that really interests me is the determinants of human nature. What makes people do the things they do? And so we're constantly having those discussions and analyzing things. Someone else would say we're just kind of nerdy, but that's okay. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. So, free will, where are you? <laughs> uh, are we all living in a... a, a living in the matrix, living in a hologram, <laughs> no, unaware we're actually AI. <laughs> well, so the thing that interests me more than anything, I think, is what causes people to shift from one ideological belief to another one? Mm. Like, what's that process? I'm so, because I've experienced it in my own life, you know, to go from this southern, white female who literally did check off all the boxes to someone who now I feel like my world has expanded in such so many ways that had I stayed confined to that I'd be I guess I wouldn't know any different but I'm you know I, there was a process and I've likened it to calling it the ripening you know what are the things that happen that cause people to suddenly get sober or to change their belief on racism or to kind of shake out of an evangelical, hardened religious view. That's the sort of things that we talk about, you know? Yeah. Well, ripening to me connotes some length of time, yes. like a gradual process, yeah. but there are also these sudden transformations, yeah. like a transformative. Mm -hmm. and you may not realize it at a time. So what was a time where when you look back on it, that was the pivot point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I was coming over here today, I was thinking about that it wasn't far from here, Kenilworth and East Boulevard, actually, mm. where on this day, oh, I might cry. I might cry. It's July 7th, 1993. Um, I set off on a run after having been dealt with depression and my addiction and, you know, actually considering ending my life the night before, which would have been July 6th set off on a run and had an epiphany, I sort of got struck by lightning. I was in a thunderstorm, but <laughs> so not literally, where I just realized that for 32 years of my life, I'd been allowing these boxes to confine the spirit that is me. And it was when I got sober, it's when I got involved in a 12-step group, it's when everything changed. So were you running when this uh -huh. sort of yeah. Epiphany? Yeah. Did it come to you in words or did it come to you in just sort of a aha? It came to me. I used to be concerned about sharing this because I cared what people thought, but now I don't care anymore. So uh, it was like for a period of eight steps, I felt nothing. Like I was no thing. I, it's like I shattered into a thousand brilliant pieces of light if, if you want to give it words. And it wasn't until I kind of came out of it that I realized I had thoughts about it. But while I was in it, I was just it. I was just whatever that was. That's like a transcendent moment. Yeah, it was. It was. That's a spiritual kind of a thing. It was very spiritual. It was this, my, you know, in, in AA they talk about it can come slowly or come quickly and it was just like, bam, there you go. Do you think you would have lived to see this day had you not had that happen? You think you'd still be alive? Yeah, I do because I have enough faith in um, whatever that, that is that I experienced that day that it abides, it will abide until, you know, it was content. There had been many times it had tried to hit me outside the head before that and then it, 
this was the time that it, I got it. When you say you abide with this, I get much more of an Eastern sense from you about a force, not a person, not the man with the long gray beard, but this impersonal force made personal because you connect with or relate to it. I would say that's probably true. I think that's one of the reasons I've struggled with religion. It feels like there's a third party involved. And I mean, and I'm, and for some, listen, for some people that works. And so I'm not at all suggesting, I'm not anti-religion by any means. I just know that I find that connection in every, I, if I'm conscious about it, I can find it all the time, you know, but I'm not conscious of it all the time. But I feel it when I run, I feel it when I'm, you know, laughing with one of my kids. I, I definitely feel it when I'm in nature. And so that's kind of how I, I feel it in connection with people. You know, you have those moments where you just see the other person and they see you. I mean, that's as good as it gets. Yeah. And they call in Western and Christianity, they call it seeing the Christ in someone. Mm -hmm. And in the East, they say namaste, which yes. is the divine within me sees the divine within you. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's wild how similar those two statements are. Totally. It's and I, the words are what's getting in the way yeah. there, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I, I sometimes long for community in the way that you've described that, that people find in church. There's a, to be able to have discussions around spirituality and all of that. And yet, for whatever reason, I find that I, I'm, I'm more attracted to literally walking in nature than showing up at a church on a Sunday. It's just how, where I'm at. Yeah. There are a lot of people who, that's their spiritual connection is yeah. to go either alone or in yeah. pairs and yeah. silently walk. Mm -hmm. The last five years, four years in this little town of Marfa was the first time in my life I've been alone ever. And I remember it was a Sunday, like the second Sunday I was there and I realized that I didn't have to do anything. And then I started wondering, well, have I ever had to do anything or did I just think that I had to do something? And I remember I just got some pens and paper and I drew for about three hours. And I don't know the last time that I've just enjoyed, you know, enjoying something just for the sake of enjoying it. There was no agenda or motive. It was just doing the thing. And that's, that's been such a gift and something that I hope I brought back with me, you know? But that is another one of those moments where I just feel feel God or yeah do you ever worry do I worry yeah oh my gosh yeah um, what do you worry about I worry that's a great question I worry a lot less than I used to I worry about well actually I don't worry that much anymore <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh my how, God! How did yes. you learn? How did you learn <laughs> to let go of worry? Well, I've had so many experiences in my life where I worried the hell out of something. Like, Just, what's a good one? Oh, finances! Yeah. Oh my God! Worry, worry, worry! It's like insane the amount of worry, and you know, it keeps me from being available to anything that's happening. I'm worrying. In the I'm, present, it in keeps the you yeah, from, yeah, yeah, losing sleep, etc. And then. It just works out. It Isn't just that works out. It is. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, I want to get to the <laughs> other side of it. As someone who woke up at 2:44 a.m. Yeah. and found that I could not get back to sleep before 5:30, yeah. I, I I look forward to it. And you and I have about you have what is it? Four days more sobriety <laughs> than I do, and so I'm like. I, I, you're my hero, that's why I'm here talking, is because I'm like, how do you get to that point? How did you learn to let go of worry, particularly about money, about finances? 
Well, I think the, the greater gift of letting go of worry was with my children, actually. So when they were in their adolescent years, and I, I worried a lot. I was a single mom. And uh, I remember, and I, this is, I, I'm sharing this publicly, and my son is okay with me sharing this. So we went to a counselor because he was not doing well in school. He was not checking off all the boxes. And this was fearful for me, even though I lived outside the boxes. And I remember the therapist asking me what I did. I said, I started Girls on the Run. He goes, oh, well, that explains everything. Meaning about Hank, you know, my boy, not checking off the boxes. And I realized at that point that, you know what, I got to stop worrying about, the worry comes because I somehow think it, it, it comes from having some uh, perceived right way to do it. Do you know what I mean? Expectation. Yeah, the expectation. And once I released that, my boy flew, like his wings unfurled. And he stopped high school. He went to New York at age 17, made his way there. And he is one of the most well-adapted, zen-filled, awesome kids because he has a faith in that thing also, right? It all, he just follows his intuition and his heart instead of trying to make straight A's and I'm you know for some people making straight A's is what they, is good it just wasn't his way and that's what he taught me that's what my kids taught me I think there are ways of cultivating that intuition mm -hmm. how have you been able to cultivate intuitive guidance well one thing that I do know is I love when I get a hard no Right? So, you know, you're doing something and That's you, an answer. you know, you apply for something or you hope for something and you whatever and then it's just like nope. Well that is one way to have your intuition, right? It's just like that's not gonna happen. So just let that go. Back in nineteen ninety nine, I remember it because my daughter was little, my second marriage was struggling and my mom who was you know sober for many years and I was sober for a few my mom was had this great way of just sort of slipping me little books or notes or things that she thought might work she didn't say read this she just go oh here here's a cool thing and this was a book on contemplative meditation which is different from meditation and I didn't know the difference so meditation to me is just when you clear your mind and it becomes no thing Contemplative is where you open your mind to kind of hear whatever possibilities are out there. And so I started, you know, practicing this form of meditation. And it would be amazing to me how it was clear as day when I had to make a decision about something, I would just hear it. Okay, it's time for you to leave this marriage. I mean, that's how loud that was. And it, you know, anytime I have doubt, I, I don't act on it because I know that I'll know when I know. Does that make sense? Yeah, I just don't have any, you know, I have no doubt about knowing when I need to know. Well, one way is you don't make decisions based on fear. No. Like doubt is another word for fear. True. And so you're not acting or rather reacting on the basis of running away from something. You're waiting to hear what you should run toward. Thank you. That that's very clarifying for me. But that's right. Well, I'm not trying to no, put that, words. I'm that checking helps. this. Check no. me on. Yeah, because I just know when I know. It's like I, I knew when it was time to go to Marfa, and I knew it was Marfa. And at the time, I couldn't have articulated exactly why I was going. But in hindsight, I know I had a lot of work. I need. I wanted. I must have wanted to do around childhood trauma and lots of things. I'm just now hearing the name Marfa because my son wants to take a trip out to there. Marfa is a town in Texas, mm -hmm. but it's in West Texas. Mm -hmm. And it's not that far from, um, like, what's it called? Big Bend? Yeah, it's real near Big Bend. Which state, is uh, state huge and national, national park. park. Mm -hmm. And gorgeous. The Rio Grande? Does yeah. the Rio Grande go through there? Yeah, it's and, amazing. And just amazing national park. What is Marfa, and like why Marfa, and what is it, and what did it represent to you? So, this is when people will really think I'm out there. <laughs> I was on a shuttle 
from a Denver hotel to the Denver airport, and I met a gentleman who was probably 20 years older than me, a cowboy, cowboy hat, buckle, boots, and we struck up a conversation. And he's from Dallas, so he's a Dallas cow cowboy type. And he looked at me, and he goes, you, you look like you'd like Marfa, Texas. And I just never forgot that. I was like, what about Marfa? So fast forward to, you know, five years ago when I was thinking I'd really like to find a place to just un-be un myself, I thought of Marfa. And so I did some research, and I decided to go. What does that mean, to unbe yourself? to un unroll, I guess disroll myself. You know, I think I had become so attached to my girls on the run founder role, the mother role, the somebody's girlfriend role, all these roles, I had forgotten who I was underneath there. I just didn't even know anymore what I'm as a person moving into the last part of my life. What who who is this thing? So I went to this town where no one knew me, and it was amazing. Uh, why Marfa? What? Tell me about this place. Marfa is this town of about maybe 1,500 people in far west Texas. It's the landscape is spectacular. The people there are uh, many are of Mexican descent or immigrants from Mexico, and the resident other residents, the newcomers, are a lot of artists and people from all around the country that come there probably to get away to and or to do art. So it's this kind of amazing blend of old and new. And it has its challenges just like any other city with gentrification and you know a lot of that going on. But only 1,500 people? Mm -hmm. It hasn't been wrecked? There would be some of the some of the natives that would say have deep concern for it becoming wrecked by outsiders who are um, buying up older homes and then, you know, gentrifying them, beautifying them to where they are no longer available to people that can afford it. So that changes the nature of a community. Mm -hmm. um, so did you make friends there? Yeah, I have some really close friends that I will definitely stay in touch with for the rest of my life. And they are now included in that inner circle that we spoke of before. There's right. three or four, yeah, that I can just, and because they knew me as me, not founder girls on the run or, you know, Hank's mother or Helen's mother. They just knew how I showed up. Um, why did you come back? I went through COVID out there, you know, and I mean, I have to say it was a kind of a grand place to go through COVID. Access to the outdoors was available year round so I could get outside. And I just miss my roots. So now I'm in the part of the journey back where I'm not exactly sure why I'm here. I just know that I need to come back. And I really miss my children and it's much easier to reach my son in Portland, Oregon from Charlotte, actually, than it is from Marfa, which is so isolated. And my daughter lives here. There's just something about wanting to be closer to them. Yeah, it's really important. Mm -hmm. That's great. And um, in what ways would you say you're a different person than the person who left how many years ago? To Marfa? Yeah, yeah it's been about four and a half years. I was thinking about that and conversing with one of my friends on this yesterday that like, I was walking, I think sometimes I, I do, okay, here's what I do worry about, that people will think something of me when I say things like this. I'm walking my dog and I realize that I have no, re, no agenda in walk. I'm just walking the dog and that is all that is necessary. And I don't think I could have done that before I left. My mind would have been thinking about what next nonprofit do I have to start or you know, who do I need to call or who have I let down or what have I got to do? And it just struck me that wow, this is this is all I need to do is walk the dog. You're describing being in the moment. Mm -hmm. 
So did you develop an ability to be at peace in the moment? For sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's been interesting with all that's happened politically, and I wanted to speak to that when you said worry, you know. I don't worry about this country, but I'm enraged. So I think those are two, you know, especially around um, the recent overturning of Roe. It's just where I, where I am. And I think those are two different feelings. Worry, to me, feels unproductive. Rage is a very present moment. I can be rage, feel rage in the moment about things that are happening. To worry about it just feels like kind of wasted energy. So just because I don't worry doesn't mean I don't feel rage or, you know what I'm saying, about things, or joy about things that are happening. I don't know if that makes sense. My daughter, my son, and my wife, we can go and, you know, carry signs and chant and march around. Um, in your personal experience, what does this moment call upon you to do? I'm still trying to figure that out. There's so many ways to be an activist in America, which is, thank I'm still thankful that we can be activists, right? We can still express ourselves. There are the people who march. I'm not wired that way. That doesn't satisfy me, but we need those people. And then there's the political people that, you know, look at policy. And then there's the change of heart people. And that's probably where I land more. And that's why I'm so interested in this, these things that cause shifts in people's thinking. What happens? You know, what's going on? And I think it has a lot to do with listening and abiding with and just meeting people where they are instead of screaming or yelling at them. Undirected rage means self-destruction or destruction of others, but directed rage is what creates transformation and reform. You know? Totally. I think back to when I started Girls on the Run, and I think this gets lost in the telling sometime of the, of the founding story of how enraged I was at, and this was 1996, how girls were put into boxes. And this was when airbrushing and a lot of those messaging was so so consumed by how a girl looked, and it still is, I mean, on social media. But I was, I was filled with rage about that. And Girls on the Run was a way to channel that rage into something positive. So I do know that one of the things I find myself able to do now with my Girls on the Run role is utilize that to serve and to connect people and to use some of my social capital to bring about change. And that's what I'm still trying to figure out, is how to use that to do something now. Spiritually, how do you not destroy yourself? How do you process the rage so that it is productive? This has been the gift of going away for a little while. And it's, it's something, like if I feel the rage, I just go ahead and feel whatever it is that I'm feeling to its fullest. And it seems to somehow to abide with it rather than be it. So I notice that I'm feeling rage right now. I'm feeling rage or rage is there, but I don't allow it to take over this, the whole system, if that makes sense. Um, and that's been really helpful. And also having this inner circle where I can call and say every foul word, you know, known to mankind and just get it all out. You know, I think it's important to express that. You have friends who will, they'll hold space for you Totally, there too. that's the, the thing, totally, yeah. And you know, when I'm, when I'm calling some, you know, any one of them, for example, I'm like, all right, so it's your turn. I need to vent. I need to get this out right now. So can, are you available to be there for me? I mean, we're just that articulate with each other. So how do you sit in the rage without, or grief, or shame, without anesthetic? I, I don't, I, that's a great question. You just, you, I mean, 
the same way I would if I were feeling joy or happiness or relief. Well, it's just, I just go in. And the thing that I'll cry really hard or go in deep, I don't know. I don't, I don't fear it anymore. I'm not going to combust or, you know, die from it. Yeah. It just, it just is. I just go in. Um, and you know, I say all of this, the part where I'm still trying to figure things out is I don't, I have a very comfortable life. I live a very simple life, very simple. I don't own anything. <laughs> I just have very simple life. I don't know that I would be able to be saying anything that I'm saying if I lived with the constant worry of financial stress or with, I mean, I don't know how it would be if I were not a white woman in today's culture. You know, I need to sort of say that out loud. You don't need to stop and jump on Instagram now and let everybody know. No, no, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like I, I think sometimes I, I have to acknowledge that much of what I've experienced in this life is because of the systems that support people like me more than other people. That's what I want to know, other than sit around and say, I have white privilege, you know, what, what do we do with it? How can we be available for our friends, our brothers and sisters who are people of color? I think one of the most revealing things I've ever read are the 12 Pillars of White Supremacy. It's, um, maybe there's 13, and um, this is terrible. Because I needed another one. <laughs> I will get back with you on um, the 12 authors. is the number of completeness. Yeah, yeah, they needed yeah, to be yeah, extra yeah. sure. And they're, they're so entrenched in our way of being that it's, it's everything that I was raised with. And one of the things that I am trying, I'm learning to do is to, again, these are all check boxes, and I can send you, maybe in the podcast, you can put a link to it or oh, something. Oh, sure. Um, I'm learning that anytime I step outside of these, I, I'm, I'm doing good for the whole, at least in some way. So it really isn't, a, for me, as much about being a friend necessarily to a person of color. It's about what am I doing to confront this system of white supremacy that is so prevalent in our society. What am I doing and what are my friends doing and how can we do that? Um, and again, I'm, not, I'm no expert and, and I will be honest that as, even as I speak, I feel some, some, a little bit of fear, you know, because the last thing I want to do is more harm for, you know, black, brown and indigenous people. So this is one way that I'm making a difference, I think is how I'm living my life. Trying Strikes to, me this is going to take more than a Sunday school lesson. Totally. You need it's more a than a whole, cookout. It's a whole shift in how we structure our lives. It also strikes me as profoundly uncomfortable. I'm going to have to be uncomfortable. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what, what's going on now is there's so much discomfort by just a plethora of white people right now. They don't know what to do with that, you know, because they, it's not that they're losing rights, we're just leveling the rights. And so they're like yanking them back. You said something several times here about, well, and now people may think this, or yeah. people may think that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> why do you I give still, a shit? I know, I still have that little tiny <laughs> part of me that... Um, like your, your, your brain is out there running with, Okay, I'm going to say this, know, but people are going to talk. I know. I still have this. I think it's also within me. So I wrote this. It must be within me because if I, you know, I can't, I can't know something if I don't know it myself. I can't think that this about someone else unless I think it about myself. Several years ago, many years ago, 15, I don't know, 20, I wrote this piece about a fear that I had of just losing complete touch with all reality. You know, if you, if one becomes so present to the moment, 
you know, what happens? What happens if you just fly off into space? You know, if you completely forget everything. And I think sometimes I still toy with that idea of what will hap what hap what's happening? What happens if I become so present that these worldly things, you know, aren't aren't something I'm involved in. You know, it's sort of like the monk, the, the monk who goes off to a monastery or wherever monks go. Is that a monastery? Yeah. I guess. And and just and pray all day long. And that's all they do, you know, and they're completely detached from the world. Some monks do that. Um, and then there are other monks that are active in the community, you know, and I think I sometimes worry that I'm gonna just lose touch. Yeah. If you could talk to yourself at age 40, um, after you were sober, but the kids were still around and there's still all this drama, um, what would Molly at 60, early 60s tell Molly at 40? Mm. You are right where you need to be, even in all that drama and um, concern and fear. You're right where you, you know. You're just right where you need to be. Yeah, I, I don't know that my whoops. You can hear the helicopter. I don't know that my old. I'm not very good at giving advice, um, and I certainly love where I am in my life now, as I did even in my 40s. You know, I loved where I was then even though when I look back, it looked kind of chaotic. It was just good then. Anything after sobriety was pretty good, I have to say. It was better than the before time. It strikes me that in the, the world we live in, your son was probably very blessed in navigating all the things around masculinity. But I mean, sex, everything else, um, to have, he had a sister to, mm -hmm. older, younger? Younger. Okay, to have a sister and a mom, to have a kind of a matriarchal or feminist, feminine values, like the highest feminine values, you know, just in the practical ways of not becoming a coke-snorting caveman, mm -hmm. not to live in a perpetual frat house. Um, there are <laughs> men who mm -hmm. do that. Some of them put on suits and ties. Well, he and I were speaking recently about um, some of the horrific mass shootings that are being perpetrated by you know 18 to 22-year-old white, white men and um, we'd read an article, and I can't remember what publication it was from, where the author of the article basically suggested that one of these people who per perpetrated this, one of these shootings was basically a worthless piece of mm -hmm. shit. And Hank said, see, that's the problem. No one is that. And all of these young boys are trying to figure out how not to be that, you know, like they think that by doing something like this that will elevate them or, you know, it, it's all twisted, he's saying, but, you know, we've got this toxic masculine set of boxes and the last thing you want to be is a worthless piece of shit. And so I, I really appreciate where he's coming from in that, you know, it's like it, it doesn't give them, a, certainly I'm not I'm not supporting any of, obviously, any of those actions, but somehow we've got to start way before this happens so that boys understand, you know, they are worthy of affection and love and empathy and all the things that this, sadly, a lot of our American culture doesn't afford them. Yeah. What do you think happens when we die? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Are you scared? Not at all. I used to be scared, but no, I'm not. The only thing that I, I you know, I think, I think more about death now. I just want to make sure my kids are cool with my dying, you know, and occasionally I'll mention it, you know. Oh, but 
it won't matter because I'll be dead. Because it won't matter because I'll be dead. And they're like, Mom, you know, no, we're not going to talk about that. You know, and I get that. They, but yeah, I don't have any fear about it, nor do I know where, what will happen. So I'll just wait and see. I'm like, who wants the kitchen table? Yeah, Tell me I know, now. I know. They don't, I don't I've know if your kids. become my mother. Yes, I don't know if they think that's funny or are disturbed by it. Mine do not think it's funny right now. They don't. <laughs> I'm like, I look at these like Emmys and I'm like, these are going in the dumpster. A friend of mine was telling me about a, oh yeah, right, right. All the awards and stuff. Yeah. Oh, you should do what I do. I already got rid of all mine. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's. I still. Kind of sort of need it for my business. Yeah, yeah. I should say that that is not completely true. Mine are in a box, and I've labeled the box, you know, to my kids. Do with as you wish after I'm after I'm dead. Yeah, I found my mother's University of Georgia sheepskin parchment, and it was parchment all rolled up and shoved in the bottom, and I can't get rid of it. No, I cannot I get rid of it. There are certain things I'm attached to with all this moving. It's interesting to look at the things we're attached to. Mine are all my kids' artwork and things my mother gave me, all little things, trinkets kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this little piece of audio, what is your legacy? I'd have to say I am really grateful to have started Girls on the Run in an organization that, you know, to have been the kickstart, the, the first spark for something that, thanks to hundreds and thousands of volunteers and a stellar staff in our headquarters, it's impacting millions of girls. That would be a pretty significant legacy. I'd, I'll say so. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm a terrible journalist. I haven't even talked to you about that. Because it strikes to me that that's a box, right? Yeah. That's something that you've probably talked to death. I've realized my trip to Marfa really was so healthy in my getting some boundaries around that because it's, it's just like a, a child. It's become its own thing. And I think for a long time I felt too attached or we were too enmeshed or interdependent on each other. And it's been really amazing to watch, especially through COVID, how the directors and the national office has managed that. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This has been a great privilege. Thank you so much. And I admire you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Congratulations for everything you've done. Thank you. Can't wait to see what the next chapter is. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it'll just be walking my dogs. You're right where you should be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she is indeed right where she should be. Molly Barker, thank you for making time. We, we became sort of instant friends and had coffee afterwards just to, you know, just to talk about all kind of things. I, I think she should found a religion personally. Um, so I'm gonna try to get a, a matriarchal, feminine-centered universe, uh, a, a, a matriarchal religion. So who knows, maybe she'll take me up on that. She said, I told her we can get her a great outfit to be like the, the high priestess. She said it should involve like a big skirt, kind of like Glenda, you know, the good, the good witch. And I said, well, you gotta have a wand. If you're gonna be the head of a matriarchal religion, you gotta have a wand. Oh, definitely. And amazing shoes, maybe, or no shoes, who knows. Uh, Molly Barker, thank you. Thank you guys for listening. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported in her words and before that man listening 
from the very beginning. I'm eternally grateful to you. Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.